Amen. All right. With you, Mother Ray, it is a happy day, isn't it? I still have that ringing in my heart. If we just lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your presence in this place today. We thank you for happiness. We thank you for your love, your peace, and your kindness. Let our hearts be prepared to receive your word that we might experience change. Bless the pastor and the words that he's about to deliver to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I told this story at the very first Sunday that we launched about a year and a half ago, uh, this church. But I'm going to tell it again because it's sort of fitting with, with the text today. But when, when my dad was young, uh, a kid, he and his brother, they all grew up in Wellston, right up the street here, okay? Uh, and it was a big deal for them to get on their bicycles and ride down here to the Del Mar Loop and come up and down the loop on their bikes. Uh, they grew up in a, in a pretty strict religious tradition that did not allow, uh, it prohibited them from going to the movies. Movies were, were viewed as a, as a worldly entertainment, so they were not allowed to go to the movies. Um, but they wanted to go to the movies. And uh, so they would, my, when they were teenagers, my dad and my uncle, they got on their bikes and they rode their bikes down from Wellston, came down on the loop, and wouldn't you know, the flashing light of the Tivoli was just too much for them. Uh, and they succumbed and uh, they came right in here into this theater, sat down in these seats and watched a movie. Now, I don't know what movie they watched back in those days, Charlie Chaplin or something, no. Um, but... But, no, so they came and watched the movie. So then they were leaving, and they were on their way home. And my dad knew that my grandfather, Guy Rome, would would ask them, where have you guys been? Uh, So my dad told his younger brother, Bob, said, look, when we get home, here's what I want you to tell Grandpa. I want you to tell him that we rode our bikes down to the Del Mar Loop. We got on the trolley. We rode the trolley back and forth. Then we went over to Heeman Park and played some ball. Then we got some soda, and then we came home. So this is what we'll tell them, okay? So they had this pact. They agreed. They get home. Guy Rome, my grandfather, says, hey, where have you guys been? Bob says, well, we came down to the loop. We got on the trolley. We went back and forth. We went to Heeman Park. We played some ball, got some soda, and went home. And my grandfather turns to my dad and said, Jim, where, where have you guys been? And he says, at the movies. <laughs> Who do you think got in more trouble? So this sibling rivalry uh, that, that goes on in life, we learn about it today in the story of Cain and Abel. We're going through a, a series called Amazing Adventures in the Story of God. And what we talked about last week and, and what I love about these stories in the scripture is that they're not airbrushed, they're not redacted, they're not through a soft lens, we're looking at people with their real issues, with their real foibles, their real flaws, their real blunders, and God uses them despite these things. And I, I like that the scripture leaves that in because I think what God is trying to communicate to you and to me is that you and I are like these people and they are like us and God used them and God can use you. God can use you. You and I are not the lead characters in our own story. We are the supporting characters in God's story. God has a sovereign plan for the world that he unrolls and unveils. And if we allow ourselves to, we can be supporting characters. It's a paradigm shift in that story. And so I hope that this, um, that this series helps us to orient ourselves in light of what God is, is, is teaching us about how he wants us 
to be used by him for his purposes, right? Um, so this particular uh, sermon in the, in the series is called Your Brother's Keeper. Last year we talked about um, Adam, and, Adam and Eve and the story in the garden and what all that implies spiritually and theologically for us and how it impacts our lives and what it means for us. You know, I will say that the, the book of Genesis, the word Genesis derives from the same root as the word gene or genetic. And basically it means beginning, birth, descent. It, it's talking about the very, the very beginning of life and what we are and who we are. Um, and so the script, so Genesis is really explaining what our spiritual DNA is. What are we like? What is humanity like? And as I mentioned last week, some, some people will read Genesis and say, is it more historical and literal or is it more symbolic and, and allegorical? Christians will debate that back and forth. But what we want to focus on today is what are the spiritual implications? What does it mean for you and me? How does this story impact us today? What does it tell us about who we are, who God is, and what the relationship between the two ought to be? Um, so last week was the study of the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. Why is there pain in the world? Why is there injustice? Why is there war? Why is there sickness? Why is there racism? Why is there conflict? Why are there natural disasters? And Genesis 2 and 3 seeks to try to address some of those questions. Um, Genesis 4 continues with this, but in in very um, specific terms about our relationship to each other. How do we relate to each other? Why do we let each other down? Why do we turn against one another? Um, And so, as we look at Genesis 4, there are three themes that that I sort of see surfacing in this text, and I want to talk about them today and, uh, at, the, at the end, and they are this. The flaw of comparing, the flaw of comparing is one, is one of the themes. The favor of faith is another theme in this, and the call to care is, is another theme in this. So let's just jump straight in. There are several verses, so I'm going I'm to, we're going to hang around in the, in the scripture for a while, um, because it's very deep, very rich. There's no way we can cover it in one day, but I want to give us an overview of it. Genesis 4 says, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So I want you to remember that last week we learned about Adam and Eve and their expulsion from the garden due to their sin. They have this new opportunity. They're They're a brand new family now. They've come together They've brought into the world their first son. It's a new beginning. It's a new hope. It's a new life. Any of you who have been around, you know, have had your own kids or nieces or nephews or just been around new babies, they represent like the possibility. Look where we can go. Uh, And so Eve is praising God in this passage and says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I've gotten a son. The word Cain actually means to get, to acquire. To obtain. So it's a, it's a, she's saying, I've gotten a man and, and, and I'm going to call him to get. I'm going to call him to acquire. Um, and then she has Abel. The word Abel is, means breath or vanity. It's the same word that has been, that is used in uh, Ecclesiastes, where the, where the scripture says over and over, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Th- it, it, and it represents just sort of the ephemeral, fleeting nature of life. And we've talked about that. Life is but a vapor, right? Um, and so we've got this Cain, and we've got Abel. We've got the, the getter, the acquirer, and we've got the, the vapor. Um, 
And it says that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Both perfectly legitimate vocations, both, you know, great vocations. They start to uh, advance in age and they start to take on what they, you know, what their own calling is. Um, Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. If you've ever read the story of Cain and Abel, you know, the, the central question that arises up in the, in the, in the immediate, uh, you know, on his face is, why does God reject one offering and accept another offering? Cain is a tiller of the ground. He brings the fruit of the ground. Abel is a shepherd. He brings sheep. Why does God have regard for one and not for another? And, and I want to give you, um, from, from my studies and, and from what I understand, the reasons uh, that God rejects one and not the other. Now, I, you know, there's a popular idea that because Cain, or that Abel brought a shepherd or a sheep and there was a blood sacrifice, that that was more acceptable. But, but in Leviticus, in the text, God allows for both kinds of sacrifices. He allows for fruit sacrifices and, and, and um, you know, wheat sacrifices and cereal sacrifices, um, as well as blood sacrifices. And so the scripture doesn't explicitly say it's because one had blood and one had another. Um, and then we see throughout the scripture God accepting whatever uh, people bring to him. He doesn't, he, it's not really the nature of the sacrifice so much. You know, in, in the New Testament, we see Jesus uh, talking about a woman who brought her last mite. And we see a woman that comes to Jesus and breaks open the alabaster box and pours out ointment. And so there are different kinds of offerings, different kinds of gifts that people bring. And God doesn't seem to be as concerned about the nature of the gift as um, what, what we'll look at in just a minute. So the second theory about this is why God rejected Cain's is, is that it was possibly the quality of the gift. And there's some traction in that idea in the scripture itself. It says that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And then it contrasts that when it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Abel brought the, the fat portions, the firstborn, the firstlings. Abel brought the choicest, the most valuable, the most important, the, the thing that caused him the greatest sacrifice. He took time to consider what would be pleasing to God, brought that and offered that, whereas it appears possibly that Cain was basically just discharging a duty. You know, I've got to bring something. I bring the, I br- you know, I just bring something. I just grab something and bring it. And so, so maybe not the nature, but possibly the quality of, of what was brought. Um, and then, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I had a, a friend, and you may have run into this at some point too, but I had a friend who's, it was his birthday, and I didn't have a gift for him. I didn't have time. This was years ago. I didn't have time to, to go shopping. And so I had a stack of books um, on my shelf. And I thought, you know, this guy reads books. And uh, so I grabbed one of the books off my shelf. And it looked pretty new. I looked back and forth at the cover, and it's like, he will never know. This guy, I mean, it looks like I'm going to bring him a nice gift. So I wrapped it, and I brought it to the party. And we're at the birthday party. He's opening his gifts. And he opens the book for me. And uh, he's like, oh, okay, great. Thanks a lot. And he f- starts to flip through the book. 
And I'm like standing behind him, and, and I'm looking, and you can see that the pages are sort of yellow around the edge. And you can see little notes in the book and highlighted portions. And I'm sitting there, and he's like very generously not mentioning it. But I'm sitting there going, look, this guy knows that I grabbed this book off. I mean, I'm the cane, right? I'm cane, and I'm just grabbing something because you, you got to bring something, right? Um, so, so possibly there's a, there's a theme in here about the, the quality of, of what um, was brought and the motive behind it. And that's what brings it to the third um, theory about why God rejected Cain's and, and accepted Abel's. And that is because the attitude with which he brought it, the heart with which Abel brought the gift. In fact, in Hebrews 11, which we'll look at in a minute, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. In other words, Abel came to God with a sense of faith, a sense of trust, a sense of confidence, hope, wanted to please God, and came to him that way, and that's what was acceptable to God. Um, so more the, 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 the orientation of the heart than the nature of the gift. Um, okay, moving along. Verse, continue in verse 5. So Cain, when God rejected Cain's offering, Cain was very angry. Now just stop and think about that just for a second. Um, if you give someone a gift and they don't like it and you get angry... You have to ask yourself, why, what, was, what was the motive for the gift? So in our family, when everybody, whenever anybody gives a gift, it is accompanied with a gift receipt. Because the presumption is, this person might not like it. But what we want them to do is to get something that they like. So you give a gift with the hope of pleasing the recipient. And if the recipient isn't pleased... If your heart is to please the recipient, then what you're going to do is say, let me get you another gift, or let me replace that, or let me fix that, right? But if it's about you, and if it's about, you know, the act of giving and your generosity, and that gift is rejected, then you're Cain and you get angry, right? Because you're not giving to please the other person. You're giving because you're trying to elevate yourself, right? And so I think that's a fascinating insight into Cain's attitude in his heart right here is that when his gift was rejected, rather than say, okay, Lord, you don't like this. Let me, let me find something else. He immediately gets angry. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will not be, ex- uh, if, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Amazing passage. This is the first time sin is mentioned in the scripture. And it's mentioned in this sort of animated, it's waiting, it's waiting to pounce at the door. It's, it's a personified sin. Um, and, uh, and God is saying, he's warning Cain, it's right there, man. Be careful, what, be careful the state of your heart. Sin is waiting to pounce. Um, in the book of Jude, when it talks about Cain uh, in the New Testament, it reflects back on Cain, and it, says, it calls the way of Cain. It says, these are the people that are like Cain. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, disobedient and rebellious, proud, corrupt, haughty, restless under the restraint of virtue, envious of those more favored. So, so the New Testament actually gives us insight into 
the attitude of Cain. This was Cain. He was coming to God, rebellious, stubborn, self-interested, and doing things out of an obligatory duty. Um, uh, And God says, watch it, because sin is crouching at the door. Um, I know I talk about Tim Keller every once in a while, but he he, uh, addressed this verse really well when he said, you know, today, when in, in sort of 21st century, we think about sin, and it seems like such an arcane concept for some people. And you go, really? You know? And, and especially as it's animated, you know, waiting, waiting to pounce. And, um, and he says, you know, the great, the great thing about this verse is that it even, it allows for us to recognize that even sin is sort of crouched, hiding, waiting to pounce. You know, I'm reminded of the, the quote in Usual Suspects, where Verbal Kent says, the greatest trick the devil, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. You know, and so when we, are, when we are blithely unaware of the possibility of sin in our heart, that's when we're in the most danger. Um, so, verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel, so, so God rejected his offering. Cain got mad. Cain spoke to Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first moment in the scripture where we have death. We have a homicide. We have a murder. Um, This is that moment in spiritual history, in human history, that envy, pride, that exaggerated self-love boiled over and erupted into violence towards someone else. And the legacy of this act, I believe, remains with us today. You can open up any newspaper, any day of the week, in any city, and you will see the legacy of this act. You will see the legacy that derives from this deeply held pride, haughtiness, rebellion. Uh, You know, it's me to the detriment of everyone else. Um, We see it today. It permeates society. Um, Verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I mean, we could hang around in Genesis for a month, just unpacking the depth of what's happening here. But what what I find absolutely fascinating is that the very first question God asks humans in the scripture is, where are you? Remember last week, Adam and Eve, when they sinned? Adam, where are you? And then there's a series of questions there. Adam goes back and forth and equivocates and justifies and rationalizes. She made me do it. You know, she did it. and uh, It wasn't my fault, you know. The second set of questions that God asks in the Bible is, um, where is your brother? First one is, where are you? Second is, where are your brother? Where is your brother? And the response, Cain's response, is chilling. Because the first thing he does is lie. I don't know. I don't know where my brother is. We know that's a lie. The second thing he does is very cavalierly, very flippantly, sarcastically, cynically, rhetorically say, am I my brother's keeper? Implying that, no, look, I have nothing to do with him. I'm my own guy. I take care of myself. I'm motivated strictly by my own interests, and I'm not worried about him. Um, 
we learn then by reading through the passage, and this is all that we'll read, um, but, but we learn go, going down through the passage that God then curses Cain, um, and Cain becomes a fugitive, and he becomes a wanderer. And it's a, it's a fitting punishment for this crime because Cain's desire is to not care for anyone else. And God says, okay, then there'll be no one else in your life. You'll be a wanderer and a fugitive. You won't have a relationship with me. You won't have a relationship with the soil, the ground. You will be in this liminal no man's land where you're wandering around with nothing, with no one. Um, and, and that's the curse. And then, um, and we'll talk in, at the very end about God's mercy that he extends to Cain. But I want to just quickly touch on a few of the themes that, that we pull out of here. And the first one is the flaw of comparing. When we compare ourselves with others, which is what Cain did here, um, we ultimately result with one of two attitudes. Both of them are sinful. The first one is judgment. When we compare ourselves to others, we may tend to judge them. We may look at them and say, I'm superior. They're inferior, right? This is a sin. Uh, just when, like when Jesus was talking about the Pharisee worshiping at the, at the wall and, and, the, and the man said, God, thank you so much that I'm not like this guy over here and there's a tax collector over here. And the Pharisee's like, thank you. I'm just so glad that I'm so righteous and so awesome. And this guy is such a punk, you know, and I'm not like him. Thank you uh, for that. Um, that's judgment. God condemns that, right? So when we compare ourselves to others, we either judge or we envy. We look at someone else and we say, they're better than me. Why are they better than me? Why do they have better things than me? Why are they better off than me? I deserve what they have. There's a great play written by Peter Sheffer, and it's called Amadeus, and it's sort of a fictionalized version of uh, the life of, of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And, uh, and there's a character in the play called Salieri, Antonio Salieri. And Salieri is this composer who's talented and bright, but he sees Mozart and he just, his, the, the brilliance and the genius of Mozart is so overwhelming to him that he, he can't help but just be saturated and soaked in envy towards Mozart. And uh, this, they made it into a movie. It won, I think, eight Academy Awards or something. Like but there's a, there's a monologue in this play where Salieri turns to God and he's talking about Mozart, okay? And he turns to God and he says, to God, from now on we are enemies, you and I. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy. And you give me for reward only the, the ability to recognize his genius. Because, he says, you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. He is overcome with envy and jealousy towards what Mozart has. And we go on through the story and, and he actually considers... Uh, murdering him. And, and he wants to murder him and then steal his own musical score and then pretend that he wrote it so that everyone will think that he's the genius. But anyway, so you got to watch the envy. Um, social scientists have also been doing some research on the connection between these outbursts of violence that we're seeing in our society and this sense of envy that kids carry with them when they're in the sort of pecking order of high school. And they were looking at um, the Columbine shooter and his... Um, 
journal, and, and there were portions of his journal where, for example, he said, this is a quote, I see jocks having fun, friends, women. I hated the happiness that they have. He's looking at himself and saying, why am I not getting what they're getting? Um, same with the Virginia Tech shooter in his journal. He said, quote, your Mercedes wasn't enough, you brats. Your golden necklaces weren't enough, you snobs. Oh, the happiness I could have had mingling among you hedonists, being counted as one of you. You see an outsider looking at someone and saying, they have something that I don't have and I should have it and I deserve it and I want to be more like them and I want to take them out. I don't want them around. Um, Proverbs 27, 4 says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? This is a deeply seated issue. And, and, you know, most of us are hopefully not on the far end of this, but all of us will at some point in our life be tempted to look at someone else and say, why do they have that and I have this? And I should have that. And they're more beautiful and they're more intelligent and they're, they have more money and they're, well, you know, we're, we're all tempted to do that in some way. And the scriptures re- repeatedly warn us against that. Proverbs um, 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Don't compare yourself to others. We all are God's creatures. God loves us abundantly. He pours his life out for us. He loves each and every one of us individually. Individually, He made you like you are. He loves you. He adores you. You're going to block your relationship with him if you're going to turn your eyes on other people. Amen? Okay. Next point in this, in this, in this uh, passage is the favor of faith. Now, I was fortunate enough to have a good dad. I had a good father that I knew no matter what was going on in his life, no matter how busy he was as a pastor, no matter what was going on. If I needed him, I could reach out to him. I could call him. And he would come. I knew that. I had confidence in that. I had hope in that. I believed in that. God is telling us, in this story, that he wants us to have that attitude towards him. Cain came to him with faith. And God is saying, look, I want you to surrender your pride. I want you to surrender your rebellion, your obstinance, your self-righteousness, and come to me with hope, with confidence that I will love you. Don't divert yourself from me. Don't let these other things get in the way. Hebrews 11, 1 through 4 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's voice still speaks to us today and says, come to God with an open heart. Come to God with confidence. Lay down your fear. Lay down your worry. Lay down your struggle and say, God, I want you in my life. I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't till the ground long enough and hard enough to please you. I'm going to have to just come to you with all my flaws, with all my problems, with all my issues. And, and hope and pray and believe that you will love me and accept me the way I am. That's what he's calling us to do. That's the gospel. Oh, happy day, right? He washed my sins away. Um, Scripture says that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We've got to come to God with a, with a heart of faith. We have to come to God with a heart of faith. And the last point of this passage that I want to talk about 
is the call to care. The call to care. Um, there's a man in, in, in my building at work that shines shoes. And uh, he's a great guy, and, and I talk to him all the time. And, and he, um, th- th- a couple weeks ago, his, he was frying something on the stove and caught his apartment on fire and burned his whole apartment down. Um, and, you know, this is not a guy who makes a lot of money or anything like that. And really, it was, it was going to be devastating for his, him and his family. And there were some guys at work and that immediately jumped on it. And I got an email within a few hours saying, hey, guys, we're going to pool together some resources and help this guy out and get him back on his feet. And I, and I tell you, you know, I mean, I don't know if those guys, those particular attorneys were Christians or not, but they were exhibiting what God is calling us to right here. They were caring about someone. They, they were being their brother's keeper. They were taking care of this guy. Um, Jesus says in Matthew, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. So when Cain says to God, Am I my brother's keeper? God doesn't answer him. God doesn't answer him. He doesn't answer us on this question. He leaves the question hanging out there for you to answer for yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Are you willing to love others and serve others and give of your time and energy and help people in need and reach out? Are you willing to live out the mission that God has called you to? Are you willing to do that? Are you your brother's keeper? I am so grateful and proud and pleased that our church, I believe, we're not perfect, but we're living, we are working towards living out this mission. You know, our mission, we've said it from the beginning, you know, is is sort of grounded in Isaiah 61, and it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon us. He's called us to bring good tidings to the meek, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those that mourn, to appoint unto those that mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for heaviness. That's what you guys were doing today. You were giving us praise for the spirit of heaviness. You came in here today with a sense of heaviness or foreboding, and you see this 20-person choir just saying, you know, oh, happy day, and we love you, and it's, it's transformative. God's calling us to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. And so I want to encourage us as a community and as a church to answer that call, that call to care. Um, I want to close with this. I think, by reading the scripture, that by the end of Cain's life, he got it. He got it. The scripture says that Cain left, was a wanderer and a fugitive, but eventually married, found a wife, had kids, and built a city. And the name of the city is Enoch. And the word Enoch means to begin, to dedicate or to begin. I believe that God, through his loving mercy and his grace, you know, the scripture says he put his mark on Cain to keep him protected, and that he let him go and, and, and into the wilderness, and this guy found a new beginning. He found an opportunity to start again. I would submit to you that you and I, we are Cain. 
We, are, we tend to be self-interested. We tend to look after ourselves. We compare ourselves at times to others. We do the things that he did. And God keeps saying, I'm going to let you begin again. I'm going to let you begin again. And just like Abel offered a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice on that altar, so too did our father offer the firstlings of, of his own life, his son, to us, to offer as a blood sacrifice to us so that you and I could begin again. Amen? Let's be our brother's keeper. Let's begin again. Let's let that past, like Pam said, past is over. I've been changed, and let's move ahead into what God has for us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.